good morning. Paul and I are going to do this together this morning. This is, the, uh, this is really fun to do it this way, and uh, plus it means, you know, the moms in Paul's life gets to right. celebrate him this morning too up here. And, and uh, I actually think my mom, she is somewhere where there's not much internet, so she said she may have to watch this later. So Catch up with if it. If I say anything wrong, we can kind of, <laughs> you know, cut that, edit that out later. Um, okay, let's take a second. I was going to have John do it too, but John's mom is here. So that's lucky. Oh, I left yeah. my phone down there. I need to get my phone. Can you grab mine I'll too? We're going to call our moms real quick. If you haven't called your mom yet, call your mom. Oh, thanks. So I'm going to take just a sec, just in case, if she can, in case she can get me. So, so take a second and call your mom. If you got a gift, oh, kids, uh, my kids, in my closet are mom's uh, Mother's Day gifts. There should be three in there. Why don't you go grab those for her and let her open those up to her in a second after she calls Linda. All righty. Okay, good. Hope that worked out well for you. I actually got mine. I was surprised she was uh, she was uh, out where she was has a good enough signal she could get me. I'm glad. All right, so, um, uh, okay, so we're gonna this conversation on heroes. We're we're taking a break a little bit, and so Paul's gonna take point on this part of our conversation. We've been talking about the three Hebrew guys. That's right. And and that kind of triggered our conversation about heroes. So Yeah, because Chris and I, uh, before our time together here, we spent a lot of time together teaching young men about godly character traits, specifically through um, godly characters in the Bible. Right. And uh, one of the things that we, we always found fascinating was uh, it was super connecting to the young men mm-hmm. um, that they oftentimes thought that uh, by interacting with these heroes of the faith, that the scripture came alive for the, to them in a way that it never had before. Um, and then, too, that it, it, was, it always seemed to capture and resonate in their hearts uh, a little bit different than just a command of, um, let's say, a set of rules, do this, don't do this, um, to have an example to follow, seemed to give them a, a much more of a, of a foothold into this concept of um, living a, a godly lifestyle, as he's called us to do. And I think it begged, it begged the question to us of, like, why, why are we inspired by heroes? Um, what is it about mm-hmm. heroes that captures us and causes us to, to find inspiration and want to follow them? Um, and really, through really a conversation that C.S. Lewis had through a number of letters uh, and had published and written in a couple different ways, um, where he talks about this concept of the, what he would call the true myth of the Gospels. Um, and what he means by myth, meaning obviously true myth, but more like mythical, um, the epic, the grandness of this. Because that was actually C.S. Lewis before his conversion. That was the one thing that tainted him towards reading the Bible is the mythical side of it mm-hmm. all because he couldn't explain it. And the fact that he's like, I can't explain this 
means that I can't put my faith in it. I don't need to trust it. Um, and really through his friendship with uh, J.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson uh, and some of the conversations they had about encouraging him to approach the Bible as a true myth, just like he approached all these literature, you know, these right. great works of literature as <clears throat> mythical and was found inspiration in them, um, that became a huge turning point to him of why he began to be what used to be off-putting. Now he found insatiable, like he couldn't, mm-hmm. couldn't consume enough of it. Um, in fact, into a letter to one of his uh, friends, Arthur Greaves, he writes this about Dyson and Tolkien. He says, now what Dyson and Tolkien showed me was this, that if I met an idea of sacrifice in a pagan story, I didn't mind it at all. That if I met the idea of a God sacrificing himself to himself, I liked it very much. Uh, he liked the mystery of it. Um, and, and he says, Again, the idea that a dying and reviving God similarly moved me, provided I met it anywhere except in the Gospels. Hmm. Now, the reason was that in pagan stories, I was prepared to feel the myth as profound and suggestive of meanings beyond my grasp, even if though he couldn't describe what it, what it meant. Uh, and he says this, he says, now the story of Christ is simply a true myth, mm-hmm. a myth working on us in the same way as others but with a tremendous difference, and that difference is that it really happened, that it is this true myth. He would go on to write that this was a created attraction left in us by our creator God, Mm -hmm. that we were created as image bearers of him. And Chris is going to talk about this here in a moment with fathers and mothers, but we bear a a responsibility to reflect an aspect of God um, as created males, as created females. And in this, we know and acknowledge that there's a part of us that is designed to where we can grasp God, but as an image bearer, there's a whole other part of us that realizes we can't explain the grandness and the greatness of our God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that left hunger uh, in us to want to pursue what is grander, pursue what is epic, pursue the grand adventure of what it is to follow Jesus Christ, uh, is something that, he, that Lewis writes was drawn in us mm-hmm. so that we would be drawn to him. Um, and, and, and I think that this is, again, why we appreciate the heroes of the faith, is this is what it draws in us. It draws us to something grander that we were created for, some purpose that mm-hmm. is beyond us. Um, and I think, again, that's why we like heroes. Now, I once heard a, uh, a teacher teach, specifically the phrase he said was, was this, men are inspired by heroes, but women are inspired by heartstrings. Have you ever heard? I've never heard, never heard this. And, and I appreciate what he was trying to say. I appreciate the concept of what he was getting at, which is essentially that men and women are inspired differently. Um, but where I would think I would counter him is I would, I would essentially think, no, I think we're all drawn by our heartstrings. I think it is our heartstrings yeah, that yeah. connect us to these to the heroes, heroes. Yeah. That, that we all are drawn by, to these heroes with what connects to our hearts. And again, I think what I appreciate about it, even though the wording he put it in was probably not the best, I'd say we all are connected by our heartstrings to heroes, but men and women find different heartstrings sure, that connect them. Um, I, I tend to probably relate more to heroes in, in an intellectual way, in a, an adventure-seeking way, in mm-hmm. an outward self-sacrifice way. Um, my wife connects to these heroes of faith probably more through an emotional connection, uh, more with the, instead of the actions of the heroes, she connects more to the being, who yeah. the hero is, the instilled uh, virtuous behavior that they're doing. And so um, I, I think that hopefully our, our, our aim this morning as we talk about some of these heroes is that um, God will draw from your heartstrings however mm-hmm. he's created you to be, to connect with this, uh, to connect with these heroes and see an inspiration of what he is doing mightily in your life, just like he was working mightily in, in their lives. And so hopefully we can do that. Hopefully we can yep. get our heartstrings connected to them. The quote that 
that I remember when I talk about this uh, is my favorite songwriter, uh, Christian songwriter Rich Mullins, in his song "Boy Like Me, Man Like You," wrote the fr- lines, uh, what the this, this phrase: "Did they tell you stories about the saints of old? Stories about their faith? They say stories like that make a boy grow bold, and stories like that make a man walk straight." Um, I think these heroic stories are a big deal. And even while we were teaching young men, um, the other days of the week I was teaching young ladies young as well. Yep. And I, I would, yeah, I would say women, those ladies at least were just as inspired by their heroes that we looked right. at. But I agree with you. I think the reason that, that, that a story connects us is because it hits us at every level. It hits right. our heart and our gut and our mind and our arms and our hands and our feet. And I remember, I remember when we would teach the mighty men, we would have the boys hold a sword and try to hold it for a long time. Like it, There's something very uh, visceral and physical. physical about all of that stuff. And, and I think heroes do that for us, is they create this image that, that is unattainable, except that it isn't in reality. Right. And so right. as we look at these, and, and when I think about this idea of father, so I've said for, for a long time, as I've really wrestled through what a father was and what a mother was, and it's way more complicated than this, but the simple definition is a father is someone who exemplifies, who portrays, who, who exhibits the paternal traits of God. And so anyone who does that is a father. And to the degree someone does that in your life, they are a father to you. Yeah. And so I think we need dozens, if not hundreds of fathers to fill in the character of God for us. Right. And because our, our bio dads or our adopted dads or our, our foster dads or, or our whatever, our granddads, our stepdads, all of them, like there's a, no one can do that fully. And hopefully we do that better than, than some, but and that's a goal. And moms, mothers are people who um, exemplify the maternal traits of God. And so it's, it's interesting, God, we are created in God's image, but God created this this sex, this, this male-female, he created right. them male and female. It's like he was saying, I'm creating them in my image, male and female, and, and my image is being born by them in different ways, the maternal and the paternal. We all bear his image, but in different ways. And I think that's a powerful picture. And so we all need dozens, hundreds of mothers yeah. in our lives to, to fill in the gaps of God's maternal traits. And, and being a biological mother is not necessary to be a mother right. in the gospel. Um, I, I reference, like, I, I think of Rebecca Rains as a great example of a mother, yeah. someone who is, is single and doesn't have children, and yet biological children, and yet she is a mother to hundreds. Yeah, like, my kids included. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Ours inc- yeah, that's right. And so that's a good example. We have that. Carly, Carly and others, they fit like they, they, they exemplify these maternal traits of God, and we all need that. Um, in fact, we have a tradition here we've been doing for the last, I don't know, five or six years where we pray for moms, and I have a special prayer that I wrote years ago for moms, and I want to I pray the prayer now um, and f- to pray this prayer over our mothers and, and uh, to call us to prayer to pray for moms and then, and then for us to pray. And then we also um, had a couple of people, I, I, I kind of asked around and I got a couple of people to to come and do a couple of stories about how other, as moms, other mothers have impacted them as mothers. Mm-hmm. That just seemed like a, a good combo, like a doubling up. Like we got these mothers and what they needed was someone to come alongside of them and other mothers did so. So let me, I'm going to say this prayer and at the end of the prayer, we'll start the first one of those um, about Lindsay. So, um, so here's, here's kind of the tradition. Perhaps for you today is a day that is nothing but joy to recall and celebrate. Um, but many intentionally avoid church on Mother's Day because of the pain associated one way or another. Perhaps today is hard 
Perhaps maybe your relationship with the very concept of what a mother is is difficult or traumatic. Perhaps you celebrate as your definition of what a mom has been. It's been broadened to include all of those who have blessed you with the example of God's maternal traits. And you've learned to pass those along as well. Perhaps every year there's an aspect of grief over a loss in your family. Your mother, the mother of your children, grandchildren may have left this life. Perhaps today is simply the day that you get to choose where you go out to eat. I mean, maybe not this year. Um, any, any woman representing the maternal aspects of the character of God as a mother, his strong, nurturing, sacrificial, warm, and compassionate traits are the cosmic, transcendent standard of mothering. All of us have at least one mom who took the role of giving birth to us. Most of us have hundreds or thousands of women who have been moms to us, each representing some part of the aspects of God. Uh, Mark 10, 29-31, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first certainly applies to moms. So we take advantage of the fact that our culture celebrates moms today by praying for you guys in a special way here. So join with me, please. Lord, we ask that you pour out your special blessings on those who represent your maternal traits today. Thank you for the gift of our mothers. Thank you that you give us a spiritual life like a mother gives us physical life. Thank you that you don't forget us like a mother who won't forget the children she cares for. Thank you that you give us peace and comfort like a mother who comforts a little one. Thank you that we, like the Apostle Paul, can claim spiritual mothers in our lives. Thank you for all the mothers who display such truths to us. Thank you for providing many moms of the gospel whom we count as a blessing from you. May you bless them and keep them and make your face shine upon them and give them your peace. We ask your special blessing on all mothers, holding children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, theirs and others, and praying and praying. So we lift up birth mothers who gave up their children to be adopted, mothers who have had children who died, mothers who have had miscarriages or adoptions that have fallen through, mothers of aborted babies, future mothers in the challenges of infertility, pregnant mothers, new mothers, mothers waiting for an adoption, foster moms, stepmoms, spiritual moms, single moms, adoptive moms, grandmothers and great-grandmothers, moms who have broken relationships with their daughters or sons or even their own mothers. Mothers who will be facing an empty nest with all the grieving and celebrations that entails. What we all too often think of as regular mothers as if it wasn't extraordinary. In the daily trenches seeking to create Christ followers by rocking and soothing and disciplining and changing diapers and band-aids and giving medicine. And sitting on the edge of the bed listening and loving and hoping and giving keys and curfews and planning weddings and holding grandchildren and great-grandchildren and praying and praying. We know that there are warriors in our midst and we remember them especially today. They feel the pain of motherhood as you do. Any and all women representing the maternal traits, the character of you, our God, in their lives, please pour out your blessings on them. Make your face shine upon them and give them, our, give them your peace. Thank you for our mothers and the mothers of my children and my mother and all of my mothers. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Um, I'm checking along in my motherhood, doing my thing. <laughs> I have a, a, yeah, two boys, and um, we're gearing up for spring coming, and the weather getting pretty, and I am just pumped about the spring. <clears throat> and then Corona hits, <laughs> and it's like 
cocksucker. You actually don't get to go to the park and don't get to go out to camp and don't get to go spend time with your friends and don't get to do all of these things. Um, instead, you get to stay home with your two boys. And I was just like, all right, game on. About a month in, two weeks in. I um, started feeling very um, irritable, I think. I started to realize that the way that this like tension was coming out was in anger toward my kids. At first it started to just be little things where I was just like, you know, my two-year-old is at a chatterbox stage where he is just like, mama, let's talk about ambulances, police cars, fire trucks, firemen, grass, trees, the sky, let's talk about it. And I'm just like, stop talking. And so I was sitting in James 4, and he was talking about um, like what heavenly wisdom looks like. He's like, this is heavenly wisdom, it's pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's, and he's like listing all of these things and I'm reading it and I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Like, I, I have not been acting in wisdom. <laughs> I recognized immediately you need to humble yourself through confession. And in quarantine, I have not confessed anything to anyone because I have no one around me. And so in that moment, I was like, I feel like I need to confess. I was like, what am I supposed to do? Just ask my small group girls to like do a Zoom call to confess or something? And I was like, guess that's my only option. <laughs> okay. And so I send a text to these three other moms in my small group. And um, I'm just like, guys, Lord's convicted me. I need to confess something. Can y'all jump on a Zoom call to, like tonight? It's like 10 o'clock that night. I We all get on this Zoom call and I, it was embarrassing a little bit. It was such a sweet time to hear from other moms who are in the exact same stage. We're all in quarantine together. We all have kids. Um, to hear them give wisdom um, and offer forgiveness, like in the same realm. Walking into confession with these girls, it was interesting. I, I was thinking about it, like, I think it went through my brain of like, oh, are they gonna think I'm a terrible mom? Are they gonna judge me? Um, and then it was quickly answered with a no, like they're not. This is vulnerability, like this is community. This is embracing your role as a mom and acknowledging when you need help and asking for that help. And all of that is good and glorifying to the Lord because we are acknowledging that we can't do this on our own and we're not supposed to. On that note, speaking of the, 
them as they're reaching in each other's lives and this idea of the community there. We want to jump into our first hero for the day, and that's Deborah. Now, one of the things we did is we asked some of the women in our lives um, who were the kind of their biblical heroes, and this was Deborah made a few people's lists, mm-hmm. and uh, including Rebecca's. Mm-hmm. And uh, so around 1100 BC, we have this prophetess slash judge named Deborah. Her name means B, which yeah. I don't know what the significance put in that. It probably explains why Deborah Harder has a B line at Sterling Grace. I'll bet that's I'll bet that's exactly why. But the um, yeah. uh, so the prophet and judge, same time Samuel was growing up in the temple. She is a judge and a um, and a prophetess. And do we find her in Judges four? There's an enemy, the king of Cana, Canaan, and his army commander Sisera. Um, I'm guessing that's how that's pronounced. That's yep. good as anything, right? So Sisera had 900 iron chariots. And Jabin and Sisera oppressed Israel for 20 years. I'm gonna, let's read from Judges 4. Um, so this is, this is Deborah. Is the she here. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, and Kadash Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor? taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Well, that was a question. Um, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So Barak is some kind of war leader in Israel. And, and so he's saying he's not going to go unless Deborah goes. And man, there's been a lot yeah. written about this decision. And it's so hard to know exactly what's going on. But, but you've seen a few different options. Yeah, a couple different uh, kind of interpretations of this. is, And really just to share three of the more common ones. One, uh, a lot of scholars point to Barak as a coward here. That this is cowardice that he is afraid to go. Um, and so essentially, uh, Daryl Bach wrote it like this. He said, he will not enter the fray unless this woman is beside him holding his hand. Um, and I think this is inappropriate, even by Deborah's response, because what does Deborah say? Uh, she says, well, I will go with you, but I'm not holding your hand to victory, because in fact, victory isn't even going to be given in your hand. It's going right. to be given to another woman. Um, and so a lot of people think that this is just Barak being, being a coward. Um, another one of the uh, popular <laughs> ones, this is one taken by... Um, the view of a guy named O'Connell. O'Connell thinks this is defiance, um, that he's not just a, a coward here. He's actually being defiant against God and defiant against Deborah as a prophetess. Um, essentially, what he was saying here is by conditioning his obedience to Yahweh, um, mm. by demanding Deborah's presence now, um, then he's, he's effectively calling into question her authority as a prophetess to send him on a command he can't modify. Okay. And so this is, this is almost in essence him saying, um, uh, God has called Barak through Deborah. He has given him his call. He did not say, Deborah, go with Barak. And so that's the message Bar- that Deborah gives to Barak. It doesn't say, I'll go with you. Um, but uh, that Barak is, is questioning that, defiant to that, and thus wanting to put his own clause into that, um, challenging this proclamation by requesting Deborah to accompany him. So it may be that he's cowardice. It may be that he's defiant. Or lastly, it may be that he's just pragmatic. Um, essentially, this view uh, is, is saying that 
Barak wants uh, a prophetess, a, somebody who can speak for God and, and give kind of wisdom of God's will to him uh, to be along with him in the journey. Um, essentially, God has called him to go to war through the prophetess. So let's bring the prophetess as we go to war in case I need some further direction on this. Um, whatever it is, whether it's these three, whether it's a right. mixture of these three, whether it's something else entirely, um, what, we, what we do still get is ultimately Barak is, is, this is a weakness expressed on his behalf. That's what it seems like, um, yeah. Because there is this notion that Deborah says in her answer uh, that the glory won't be given in his hand, will be taken away. Um, almost implying that if he would have just obeyed the Lord through the command of the prophetess, the glory would have been found in him. Now that's being stripped of him. Uh, and so he's to go out and do this, but not receive the same result at the end because he questioned it kind of yeah. as in the process. And Deborah might have gone with him anyway. Like that's the other yeah. thing is like that, that may have been part of the plan. So in, regardless, Deborah goes. Um, and so it's, it's not like a well-organized military campaign or anything. It seems like she gets a word from God. She calls in Barak. She tells him what to do. He calls for help. 10,000 come, just like she said would happen. Um, Barak gets to choose the site of the battle, Mount Tabor. Well, technically, God chooses the site, which, again, if you, were, if, if you get to go to Israel with us sometime, you would totally see why out in the middle of the valley there is a big, it's fields and, and rivers and creeks, and then there's just a mountain rock right in the middle of nothing, of, of just this, all this flat land. It'd be a perfect place if you're on foot and your enemy's got uh, chariots. You wouldn't want to be down in the field with them. Um, he's on the hill. They come to him. Uh, they have to face Sisera. I grabbed a couple of pictures of, of guesses as to what a Canaanite iron chariot would have looked like. But again, you're talking about men on foot versus hundreds of men or hundreds of chariots, at least covered with iron armor, pulled by big horses. It didn't matter how many foot soldiers you had, they just would have it, run you over. 10,000 men would have had no chance. Near ancient equivalent of a tank. That's right, yeah, exactly. Right. And so it, there's no chance here. And so they're up on Tabor Sisera comes with all his chariots. Suddenly, Deborah gives Barak the order to charge. They charge, and they kill all of Sisera's army. That's really the way the story tells first time around. Sisera, fleeing, finds a friendly family. He thinks he finds a friendly right. family to hide with. The wife of a friend, and we don't know where the friend is, um, invites him to come inside the tent, uh, into her tent. She gives him warm milk, a comfy blanket, convinces him that he's safe, um, and having run so far from his enemies, he falls asleep. And then the wife, who is another kind of woman mm -hmm. hero of the faith, um, we don't know much about her except this, she makes the choice to drive a tent stake through his head while he sleeps. Um, and so there you go. It's, it's quite a fascinating story. I think you got some, on JL's yeah, words so here. JL is the name of this wife. Um, uh, she's married to this man named Heber, Heber, and Heber has this affinity towards the Canaanites. He apparently is a sympathizer, at least with the Canaanites. Um, but JL is a faithful follower of Yahweh uh, herself. JL actually means uh, mountain goat. So choice between B and mountain goat. There you go. Uh, I think I would have chosen B. Um, <laughs> but as a mountain goat, here she is as a provider of milk and a warm blanket. Uh, so she's living out uh, her name here to Sisera. Um, but what happens wow. here is, is if, probably is a miss to us. The original audience wouldn't have missed how right. much of a faux pas this is actually going on, especially in the culture and in the code of hospitality that they all would have known and, and held to. Um, what Sisera does here is he systematically violates almost every code of hospitality between a guest and a host. He starts off um, not going to Heber, the right, head of the right. household. It specifically says that he goes to J.L.'s tent, the wife. Right. This, is, this is inappropriate. This, right. from the start, 
probably puts the hair, jail's hairs on end. She would have seen that this is a miss, that he's not going to the head of the house first, but instead coming to her. So that's error number one. Then the second thing is he is the one who starts with the request of hospitality from her right. rather than her giving the hospitality to him. Jael undoubtedly would have seen this as, as, as Sisera being a taker, that he is yeah. taking something from here. He's inappropriately going to her, her, her tent. Now he's inappropriately asking for her hospitality. And then to wrap it all up, he then asks, the second request he does, he asks her to go stand at the door and lie to anybody about him being inside. Right. He is essentially putting her in danger on behalf of himself. Right. Again, when it comes to guest and host, as a guest, mm -hmm. you would do nothing to put your host into danger in this exchange of hospitality. And so we get these three violations of this hospitality code. Uh, and ironically, in this scene, what, what we should see is we should see JL scared. Right. She should She's be the in one in danger and afraid here. Um, it, more specifically in Judges 5.30 and Deborah's song of praise, um, we get that uh, a little bit of a snippet into the Canaanite army. And when it comes to the oh, dividing yeah. the spoils of war, we even get this line about them including one or two womb for each man. Yeah. That this was a noted thing. Yeah. I would have to imagine that for a man to inappropriately come into her tent, for a man to inappropriately take from her, for a man to inappropriately discard her well-being uh, for his safety, Jael should be fearing the worst. Yeah. I think Jael should be afraid of, hi of him taking advantage of her, and yet she's the one to comfort him, to right. tell him not to be afraid. Uh, then to use the figurative euphemism presented here, yep. essentially instead of her being driven down upon and her life taken, she is the one who drives the peg into him, causing his death. Yep. And I think, therefore, fulfilling essentially what Deuteronomy 31 and 32 all is about, um, the will of the Lord uh, in destroying the Canaanites to give over the promised land. And I think this is why Jael is honored in Deborah's song with such uh, a virtuous account in chapter 5. Um, but Chris, you can continue a little bit yeah. about yeah. the story. So then Barak shows up you know, because he's looking, he's chasing Sisera. Jael calls Barak over to say like, hey, you know, kind of a, it's a little bit of a funny scene. I mean, it wouldn't, it'd have been horrifying, but for them, they're mm -hmm. warlike people. So, hey, I got something to show you. He goes and looks and here he is nailed to the ground, literally. Um, and this whole, this starts, I mean, you can imagine Sisera is destroyed. His iron chariots are now stuck in the mud. In fact, we're going to find out that that's the case in a second. Um, this starts pressure against the Canaanite overlords, and eventually they collapse um, and lose their status. Um, so Deborah and Barak then sing a song about this victory, um, and it's a very edgy, like mm -hmm. you said, it's a very edgy yep. song, and they, they put all these words into the mouths of the mothers of the Canaanite army about how their sons are now out there getting all these spoils and pillaging and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. And then they're almost mocking these moms. They're like, so where are your sons? They've not shown back up yet. I wonder where they went. And it's, it's harsh. There's no doubt. There's a no. very hard, there's seriousness. But we get an insight here into how God could deliver them. Judges 5.4, in the song, they say, Lord, when you went out um, from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. So now you have all these iron chariots out on this, on this plains and a, apparently a storm hit, and that, that, that would have bogged down all these chariots. Yep. Now they would have just become anchors. And, and foot to foot, 10,000 men versus probably 2,000 men 
All of a sudden, the chariots are nothing but a problem, and they would have wiped them out, and that's apparently what happened. And there's some even irony in that. Yeah, so you're talking yeah, about there's some cool irony there too. Because this is, this is not only a victory by God over the Canaanite army, um, but this is a victory by God over their God. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Canaanites worship Baal, and, uh, and we have a picture of Baal or Baal. Um, and he's typically one of the forms that he's always uh, demonstrated or presented with is he has a club in one hand. You can see that mm-hmm. in the one that's raised above his head here in this image. Uh, this club was the one representing thunder. Um, and then in his other hand, he has this stylized uh, spear um, representing lightning. And so he is a god who is, holds the power of thunder and lightning in his hand. Uh, and this makes sense because Baal was the, Baal was the uh, god of fertility. Um, he was known, one of the other names he had was the Lord of Rain and Dew. He was in, the one in control of the storms that watered the land. And what God is demonstrating is that his control is actually a false control. He's not the one who's actually over the power because when it comes to his army, instead of keeping away the storms and allowing the chariots to have in, God has come in with the power of sending a rainstorm, uh, showing that he's far superior than Baal, and he's able to put his soldiers underfoot. Not only that, uh, Baal has failed to strike his people's enemies with lightning, and yet Yahweh, through Barak, whose name means lightning, through <laughs> God's lightning, uh, he strikes his enemy and delivers his people. Um, and I think this is largely because of the faithful following of this whim of these women to uh, God's call. Um, so essentially what happens is, is you have this one woman, uh, Deborah, a bee, who stands in God's command even despite the failure of a man to respond. Then you have the second woman, a mountain goat, uh, who acts despite a husband who's weak in leading his household in the will of the Lord. And what God does is God, through a bee and a mountain goat, uh, God brings glory to himself, restoring peace to the land of both milk and honey. Uh, And so you can again see how how rich this is, is, is saturated. And yet at the same time, a little bit, um, how sad this is, uh, how sad we even today recognize there's so many households and, and so many families where it is the women, woman who has to stand up and lead in God's commands right. over her family because of a silent husband or because of a, sad, a husband who's in, embraced uh, a Canaanite culture, uh, something that's other yeah, than the Lord. a pagan culture. A pagan culture. And so I think mm. that there's something relatable to a lot of women in these women's stories um, about the faithfulness of holding to God's call and leading their families in, in that same regard. Man, we're either, we're either going to go long or we're going to have to spread this out or something. We'll, yeah. We're going to go until we just feel like we can't go any longer because this is, this is good stuff. As you can see already, these heroes... Um, in fact, we have on that we have another video of another mom, and this is a this is that this is a huge need for, I think for young moms, especially right now, is for moms who have more experience to step in. And so we have another kind of hero story to play. There we go. We first met Kelly and Perry several years ago when John was serving at another church, and our paths kind of lost touch as they were raising their kids and getting them through high school and such, and we reconnected about, I guess it was about four years ago now, um, when they showed up at South Spring. Pretty soon after we reconnected with them, they approached us, I guess it was on a Sunday, and they said, hey, we are about to send our last child out of the house. Their daughter was graduating from high school, and they said, we're going to be empty nesters. And when we were young parents, we had someone at our church that blessed us with a weekly date night. And we want to do that for you guys. 
when Kelly and Perry first approached us to come over, I mean, I will admit I was skeptical at first because I thought, my kids are a handful. I mean, they're two, three, and four, and any kids at that age would be a handful. And I thought, how are, you know, they're gonna do bedtime? Like, how are they gonna do bedtime? Because bedtime is a wartime at our house. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Initially, that was hard for me to go, okay, how am I gonna get home from work and tidy up and feed the kids and get ready for Kelly and Perry? And it took a few weeks, I think, before finally I was like, you know, they really, they actually don't care. They don't care even a little bit. They don't care I have dishes in the sink. They don't care that the laundry is on the floor. They don't care that the dogs are sprawled out of the living room. They don't care. When we would leave the house, um, I, I was nervous. I had my phone on me. Um, I thought, you know, if something goes wrong, I know they'll text. It'll be fine. And it probably took, kind of like getting used to my house being dirty, it took a couple of weeks before I realized they're not going to text me. Like, they're going to take care of it and it's going to be okay. And there were times we would come home and the kids might still be awake or something might have happened, you know, and you think, man, you probably should have called me, but they didn't because they wanted to give us that time. I was worried, are Kelly and Perry gonna be okay with my kids not on their best day? And you know, they've had some ugly days my children have with them, but the way that Kelly and Perry love them on their worst day has just been amazing to me. And so that has been, I think, very um, freeing to me because that is something that I worry about. And so having another mom who's going, I see your kids, I see all the beauty in them, I see all the goodness in them, I see the parts in them that need Jesus, and coming back over and over and over again. It's just such a beautiful um, reminder to me as a mother, as the mother to these children that in their best days and in their worst days, they're mine. And in their best days and their worst days, they're a gift to me from Jesus. And so I really appreciate that Kelly reminds me of that. What I need as a mom is to look to Christ. And if I'm loving my kids and pointing them to Jesus, then I'm doing the right thing. And if they're coming to me and feel comfortable coming to me and I give them the freedom to make their mistakes and I give them the freedom to succeed and I give them the freedom to create and the freedom to destroy and learn in that process, then um, I think I'm creating a place for them where I can continually point them to Jesus. That's, that's my goal. That, that's just good. Um, okay, Paul and I just made an executive decision. We're going we're gonna to continue to share through this until we kind of run out of time. And then we're, because looking at it, there's just too much here. Yeah. And it's too good. And I don't, I mean, I didn't know the honey and the milk and honey oh, reference. Yeah. I had never heard that to the bee and the, and the mountain goat. I mean, that's, 
I don't want to miss any of that, and I don't think you do, and so we're going to run out of time, and we run out of time. We're just going to stop and then take over next, pick up with that next week. And so um, the Mother's Day, our Mother's Day sermon is going to be two weeks long. There you go. So you get a whole, a whole Mother's Day, eight days. So, our so next, moms get a second gift next week. That's there right. You moms, yeah. you get some more <laughs> gifts. That's just how this, that's, sorry, that's how that works. All right. So, um, so we're going to jump into another, this is, this is a mother, this is, just, this is a Mother's Day story. This next one uh, as a standalone might have been a, a good one. It's, it, this is a great Mother's Day story that we're about to dive into. Um, and, but it's not till the end that you get to see how that works. So we're going to tell the story. Uh, we're going to talk through the character of Rahab. And uh, this was when I asked my mom who her favorite biblical uh, woman was. Rahab was her first choice, was her go-to. And I think that's probably true for many women as well. Um, and, and again, we'll, we'll, this will not wrap up today. We'll have to get, well, wrap up, the wrap-up will happen next week. We'll just see where we run out of time and what the Spirit has for us. So um, <clears throat> Rahab's an interesting character because uh, we don't know for sure. So remember when we discussed Mary Magdalene, that, that somewhere down the road someone decided, a pope, I think, decided yeah, she was a prostitute, prostitute, even though that's not in the Bible. Um, now, she may have been. We don't know that she wasn't either. We know she was possessed by seven demons at one point, and, and so we don't know a lot about her story. There is good reason to think, though, that Rahab yes. was a prostitute, and yes. the language here, some would say an innkeeper, um, uh, some would say that seems to indicate, the Hebrew seems to indicate a prostitute, um, and, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in just a second, maybe a little bit about that. So we talked about the names, some of the name yeah. meanings, which is always important. Her name means broad or large. And I wrote in my notes, I'm going to have Paul comment on that. Like that just seemed <laughs> Yeah. But really, this is super helpful. This, this for men who have been haunted by the age-old question uh, of your wife coming up to you and saying, honey, uh, does this dress make me look fat? Now you have the answer to say, honey, you look, that dress makes you look as beautiful as Rahab. There you go. Exactly. And, and then that's your, that's going to be your, uh, your catch-all <laughs> in that. Um, it's actually true that the Mishnah, the, the rabbinical teaching of this, concludes mm-hmm. Rahab in one of the four most beautiful women on the planet, also including Sarah, Abigail, and Esther. Um, but her, her name really does, Chris is right, her name means uh, to grow wide or to grow large. Um, but most of the time when this is used, almost every time the Aramaic form of this is used, it's reference to land. And most of the time right. that this word is used, in the, in the, even in the Old Testament, it normally means lands or boundaries or provision um, is, is expanded or grown large. Um, and, and the exact form of this is the same thing found in Genesis 26 when Isaac is digging these series of wells and he, and he keeps having running into uh, conflicts with that. And so he has to move to another well and move to another well and move to another well. And then finally he digs a well where there's no conflict and he stops and he says a prayer. Um, he names it and he says, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. This word, made room for us, is from Rahab, Same word. Ra- mm-hmm. Rahab here. Um, and so essentially, Rahab is the one who makes room, expands her right. room to take in God's people, his spies in the story. So yep. continuing in the story. Okay, so it does make sense, even, even the, as often is the case in this true myth, the fact that their names often are connected to some role that they had within this is, is God's hand on this. Um, and so here we have someone, and, and there's some thought, a couple of commentaries, even though this isn't clear in the language, and the fact that you said it's not the Hebrew word that's normally used for cult prostitute or temple prostitute, she may have been. I think it's safe to assume that, that this was not like some life goal of hers. I think just like in modern day times, 
it's a mistake to assume that anyone who finds themselves in that industry would choose that. Mm-hmm. That, that through a series of, of uh, you know, we're going to talk in a minute about Ruth or maybe next week about Ruth, right. that we see, we see Ruth's life narrowing down to probably that choice mm-hmm. before Boaz rescues her from that. And so very, you could easily imagine someone like in a, in a pagan culture like Jericho, Jericho that Rahab would have, this would have been something that had been forced upon her. She probably had a pretty rotten life in a lot of ways. Um, <clears throat> so the first time the people of Israel came to Canaan, they sent in 12 spies. Only two came back with enough faith to have a positive report. They all had the same report. Only two of them said, and therefore God can give us this land. If you remember, God then tell all the people of Israel, like, you know what, this is too scary. We're run. We're going to leave. God then puts them in a situation where they're going to now wander around for 40 years until all those other men and their other people, their generation, die off. And this time, so Joshua, it is interesting that when Joshua comes back, he doesn't send in 12. He only sends right. in two. Yep. Um, and so I think he's going like, uh, I need to find a, someone like me and Caleb. Just send those two. We don't, need, we don't need everyone's opinion. We just need two faithful people. Sends them in. Um, and so it says in verse chapter 2, verse 1, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim to the spies saying, go view um, the land, especially Jericho. And when they went and came into the house of the prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Um, so the officials of Jericho get wind of this. Rahab covers for these two spies. Um, actually, literally covers yep. them. Um, it says in 2, verse 4 through 6, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Um, she had brought them up on the roof, but she had brought them up on the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So this is, this is my favorite thing about the character of Rahab. Yes, um, in fact, I think in a minute we're going to talk a little about this, but about the fact that she's defying her right. government. But, but here's what strikes me about Rahab that's so fascinating. Here's what she tells the spies in Joshua 2.10. For we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. So days after this, the event of Egypt, of the, of the Red Sea, ten spies, of Egypt, 10 spies of Israel and all the rest of the people of Israel had forgotten that God had done this incredible, mm. mighty thing. Mm. Forty years later, Rahab had not. Yeah. That, that strikes me as significant, that Rahab remembers the mighty work of God and attributes it properly to go, we know you could wipe us out because of who God is. We're terrified because of who God is. Isn't it interesting? In fact, we could probably go back and look and see some of the language similar to what the Hebrew people were feeling about the Canaanites, mm. that the Canaanites were having the same terror of the Hebrew people that the Hebrew people had of them because they weren't afraid of the people. They were afraid of the people's God. They didn't know this God and this God had just wiped and just wiped out these two powerful Kings as well. Um, uh, Sihon and Og, this is the fact that they wiped them out. So she had a better memory for what God had done than God's people did. Mm. And that's kind of what I, I just think that's a fascinating picture. That might've been decades since the defeat of the Amorite Kings. Um, so she picks the winning side, meaning God's side. She risks all, all of her eggs in the basket of Yahweh um, and who she doesn't even really know. She only knows of him. The spies create the sign of the scarlet cord. Now everyone in her household is safe. 
And listen, we could spend a lot of time on the scarlet cord. Yeah. A lot has been done about the scarlet cord, um, man, in so many different ways, including not only does it sound a lot like Passover, right. but it also, but the Passover sounds a lot like Jesus' crucifixion, mm-hmm. so you mix those together. But I think especially in this day and age as we're wrestling with questions of we want to follow the government, we, mm-hmm. we want to follow, we talked about that a few weeks ago, authority. But this, this helps guide us as well. This is another one of those stories that helps guide us. Yeah, and, and what it is is salvation always depends on believing in a promise of God. This is what Rahab's doing. She's believing in what God says and what God can do, and thus she, this unlikely, undeserving foreign character now right. becomes a mother of Israel. Um, and, and, and again, it comes back to this civil disobedience of Rahab lying um, to the king of Jericho. And it's very reminiscent of, of, if we went back to Exodus, Exodus even in chapter 1, of Shipra and of Pua. Um, Shipra and Pua also are very similar. They're, they're like Ruth, that they're not Hebrews. These two women are Egyptians. Um, like Ruth defies the king of Jericho, these women defy the Pharaoh himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially what happens is Exodus chapter 1, a new Pharaoh comes into power who's, who's forgotten Joseph. Uh, he's terrified by the size of the Hebrew people, um, and thus he decides to put them under hard labor and uh, oppression. And he thinks this will dwindle their numbers, shrink them down, uh, but despite his effort, it's the exact opposite that happens. The more that they were impressed, the more uh, larger they grew, and the more they multiplied. And so Pharaoh kicks in plan B right at the end of chapter 1. He calls his chief midwives, these two women, uh, and assigns them to the Hebrew people. And he tells them this in Exodus 1.16. He says, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. And if it is a daughter, daughter she shall live. This makes sense because Egyptians believed that the lineage was continued through the male. And so by destroying all the males, essentially what the Pharaoh is trying to do is he's trying to wipe out the lineage of the Hebrew people so that they don't grow large, so that they don't become a threat, so they don't rise up in an uprising and stand against him. Um, but, but again, his plan doesn't work out. He's, he here is defied. God uses these two foreign women again in the salvation of his people. Verse uh, 17 says, But the midwives feared God. This is the key in the section. The midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. And Pharaoh is, is so upset by this, uh, he clearly knows that the, that the Hebrew our children, the male children, are continuing to live and continuing mm-hmm. to grow up. Um, so he calls the midwives in in verse 19. The midwives, and he, and he asks from them, why is this happening? Why haven't you done what I've said? And the midwives say to Pharaoh, because these Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women... For they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. Uh, that's their, their, their fib, their made-up story in this, is, is, uh, is saying that these, these Hebrew women are much more vigorous, and before they have an opportunity to step in and kill these children, uh, they, the children are already being born, thus they don't have the opportunity to do so. Uh, and, and then what happens is God deals favorably with the midwives, and the people uh, multiply and grew very strong, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And this is exactly what mm. we see mm-hmm. in Rahab's story. We have, see a civil disobedience answering to a higher authority, fearing not man, but fearing God, seeing his authority higher than the authority of man, um, and acting to protect God's people. God uses these foreign women to protect his, fee- his people. And thus these shrewd women who acknowledge God in all of their ways, in his power and in his right to rule, he grants them families. 
Uh, and again, mm, like you said, how much of a, a fitting time, as we talked about even in Daniel's friends, for yeah. us to have now more and more for women and for men who are willing to stand up against all authorities, even political authorities, uh, who are standing in, in contrast to God's authority um, and answering to his authority and his authority alone and lining themselves up whenever they can with God's authority, um, but disaligning themselves when that authority steps out of place of God's authority and what they've called to them to do. What I I love about all of these, so starting with, you know, we ended with the three Hebrew men standing before the king having just said, God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow. So now we're sitting, we can take those moments of heroism and say, here you would have Rahab hiding the men. I mean, she doesn't know for sure right. that, that, that they're going to win. She just has decided that the, the same thing with the midwives, like what is this going to cost them? Yeah. Is, Pharaoh, is Pharaoh as ignorant as most men are of mm-hmm. women and childbearing? <laughs> like, okay. I mean, like he just buys it, right? <laughs> and, so, and so this is a... Uh, it is a fascinating picture of we. Our job as Christians is to, as Christ followers, as God fearers, is to, is to follow along with what we believe God is teaching us and leading us to do, and we don't always know the consequences how they're going to turn out in yeah. these cases. And and so we get because we get these great stories sometimes of of it working out these brilliant, cool, miraculous ways. Um, that but it doesn't even in the Bible it doesn't always work out that way by right. any means. There's plenty of those. Um, okay, so we're definitely way out of time, and that's which is great. We're going to pick. I, I'm excited because this gives us much more time to time kind to of go through this. link in them, Rahab, and then to it gives us a, a whole time to talk about Ruth, and then even a bigger picture of the role of women in Scripture, right? Um, which I think is very worthwhile right now. I also want to take a moment. I want to pray in, in just a second, and one of the things I want to pray for, um, I do want to pray for our nation. So it's a, there's a separate, totally separate conversation, but. There are, there are some moms out there and some families out there who are really suffering right now over the, over the shooting and mm-hmm. that happened a month ago and is just now really hitting public attention. And, and it's, just, it's just a scary thing for us as a nation. And I've written a little bit about this, but uh, you know, I was watching, a, I don't know if any of you saw this, but I was watching a pastor speak on this, an African-American pastor who seems like an awesome guy. And the part that struck me, we don't know people's hearts. We don't know right. what, what motivates people. Only God knows that. But what struck me about this pastor's heart was him, say, him saying, again, he's, he's, a, he's just a, a young uh, African-American pastor saying how he jokes with his wife about jogging in their neighborhood. That he's like, mm. I'm going to go run in my neighborhood tonight. And they just laugh because, like, no, obviously he's not going to run in his neighborhood because he's an African-American man. And I just, that horrified me. Yeah. And that struck me, the level of, in- I run in my neighborhood all the time. I should do yeah. it more. but And so, I mean, I just... If we're still a nation where a, a man can't jog in his own neighborhood because of the color of his skin, then we still have to... I know we've come so far, and I don't mean... I know, no one should yeah. ever minimize how far we've come, but the power of the gospel to rescue us from these issues, and as we're talking about women who are heroes and stuff like that, none of this is meant to be sexist or, or non-sex. We're not making a statement except what the Bible teaches of the gospel here. Yeah. And it's just so amazing that we get to jump into this, and so my prayer is that the gospel, maybe, maybe somehow through all of this headache of quarantine um, will help wake people up to the, the message of the gospel to set us free of these empty ways of yeah. life handed down to us by our forefathers so often. Um, it's such, so a, it's such a, yeah, a timely reminder of the opportunity for us to stand up against injustices based right. on God's call and his promises. Um, 
uh, it's actually, we didn't mention this, but it was Warren Wearsby who actually wrote uh, on Rahab and, and essentially said when she's talking to the king of Jericho, she needed to keep uh, her words limited, that if she talked too much, she would just reveal too much mm. and get into trouble. And he was making the parallel of today, how little we talk about God and about what he does mm. and how that is what leads to others being left in death and destruction. And so all the more is it an opportunity for us to stand up against these injustices, for us to count the promises of God to be true, for us to be leading our families that way. And uh, specifically today, as we get to pray and close and acknowledge mothers and their role in that, um, and as we will continue that conversation, it seems, again, all the more timely. So yeah. well, I'm going to pray. And uh, um, absolutely. Where are we? John, do you know what our numbers are as far as signs up for next week? I know it was getting full. Huh? There's not, many. not many spots left. So go on. you can go on to the website and register if you'd like to be one of the 200. The room looks weird. The, the deacons came in and reset it with six feet between everything. And so um, uh, if you'd like to be here in person, you can do that. Our main focus will be the live service. Um, and so our assumption is everyone will be there for that. And a few people get to be here, like we said, kind of behind. Uh, they get to see what's going on behind the curtain a little bit and the, the live studio audience. So let me pray, and then as the Spirit leads, um, I, I just I pray that, that whatever it is that God's laying on your heart about trusting Him to follow our leaders and to trust Him when, the, when and if the time comes when we can't follow leaders, to trust Him in how our hearts are changed about the people around us, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what that is. We Our prayer is that the Prince of Peace would bring peace, but we'll only find it through Him. Father, we're so grateful for the power of your word. And I just, I thank you that it's so rich and your fingerprints are all over it. Um, as you deliver truth to us in, in amazing ways. Um, Lord, I thank you for uh, your, the fact that you have given us everything we need to live in peace, um, to live as free people. <coughs> Lord, that you've given us all of that, and you did so a long time ago, and it's taking us so long to figure some of this out. And just like the Hebrew people, we, we know it, and then we forget it, and then we know it, and we forget it. And Lord, I pray that as individuals and as families and as a church, we would be a body who, who, who breaks the pattern of forgetting and instead remembers. That we remember the great and mighty things that you've done, that you are the ultimate authority, and that we can trust in you, and that as... as Daniel has, has written in his poetry that you set up kings and you, you're the one who, who decide these things. And so, God, I pray that we would look to you and defer to you and seek to listen to you and through listening to you and the power of your Son and the power of your Spirit, that we would, in fact, be agents of reconciliation. That part of our ministry of reconciliation would include anything that would, that would look like um, something as ridiculous for a Christian as sexism or racism or, or any of that kind of stuff, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, um, to live out your gospel of peace, that we would lead well and we would serve well and we would love well. God, I do thank you. I pray. I know there's so many families involved in this recent event, this recent shooting, and so many people for whom this creates fear. And I pray you would bring comfort through your spirit as only you can. God, I pray you would heal our land. Um, as far as we've come, we're still so broken in so many ways, and we can make laws and we can change rules, and that's great, but the truth is we need your son. We need your son and the message of his gospel of peace to pull us out of this. 
Lord, help us to be faithful in following your way. And then in following your way, we can find the truth and the peace and the freedom that only those things bring through your Son. Thank you, Father. Speak to our hearts and help us to know how to listen and how to obey. We pray these in your Son's magnificent name through the work of your Spirit, according to your perfect knowledge.